The stories of the Avos, and specifically those of Yaakov, continue from Parsha to Parsha, with the story thread continuing over numerous weeks, such that the opening of this week's Parsha picks up where last week left off. Last week we read about Yaakov tricking his father to receive the brachos, Esav finding out, wanting to kill Yaakov, and therefore the decision was made that Yaakov needed to flee for safety, to find a wife, and to secure his future. That was last week. Our Parsha picks up where that story left off, Yaakov's actual departure. Nevertheless, the description of that departure seems verbose, and Chazal and Medrash are bothered by the language of our Pasuk. While this may seem like a technical question, the answer of the Medrash contains a profound philosophical and religious truth. The rabbis in the Medrash are bothered why they need to tell us where Yaakov is leaving from, that he's leaving from Beersheba. We already know that. We know where they were from last week's Parsha. The whole point of the Pasuk, what is both important and new and novel, is where Yaakov is running to, not where he's running from. The Torah, which is usually so careful in its language, economical in its use of words, and you hear for no apparent reason, is seemingly careless and wasting words by telling us, V'yetze Yaakov mi'bersheva. The Medrash answers by explaining that obviously this additional information, this redundant reference, is mentioned not as part of any kind of a travel log. The Torah is not the GPS journey, mapping Yaakov's journey. But rather, the description of Yetzirah Yaakov Mibershava is intended to communicate not a physical fact, but a spiritual truth. The presence of a tzaddik like Yaakov in the city provides the glory the beauty, the honor to that city. And therefore, when the tzaddik departs from the city, panaziva, panahadra, the glory, the honor, the beauty also departs. It's a different city when the tzaddik is there. And therefore, yitzias tzaddik min makom osaroshem, when the tzaddik leaves, when he departs the city, it leaves an absence, an absence that is noticed and felt. And therefore, says the Medrash, we are told about Yaakov leaving Beersheva, even though we knew that's where he was leaving from. But by mentioning it in this week's Parsha, it is highlighting that when Yaakov left, his absence was felt by those who remained behind. The Medrash mentions that, in fact, there's another example in Tanakh where the same thing happens. In Megillus Rus with Naomi, we are told, She leaves from the place that she had been. And in the continuation of those Psukim in the Megillah, it tells us exactly where she is going. And says the Medrash, we could ask the same question. We know now that it's important to know, I should say, that she's going back to Eretz Yehuda, to her home. Well, if that's the case, obviously she is Teitzim Min HaMakom, Asher HaShama. If she's going home to Eretz Yehuda, obviously she's leaving the place where she is now. So why do you need to tell us that? And the Medrash gives the exact same answer. Naomi was a tzaddikis. And therefore, when she was there, he ziva, he hadra. She was the splendor and the honor and the glory of her city. When she left, panaziva, panahadra. That glory, that splendor, also departed. All of this is more or less in Rashi. However, if you look at the Medrash in its original, it then asks the question, why do we need both examples in Tanakh, the story of Naomi and the story of Yaakov, the Psukim both in Miklas Rus and in Arparsha Vayetze, to teach us the exact same thing? It's the same message repeated now twice. We understand perhaps once we needed the extra verbosity of a Pasuk, the extra words, to teach us this important lesson. But why teach us twice? One should have been enough. The Medrash explains that when there is a difference, and therefore we needed both. Because when Naomi was there, 
she was the lone tzaddikas, she was the lone righteous person in her location. And therefore, when she left, obviously her absence would be felt. Versus when Yaakov departed, his parents, Yitzhak and Rivka, remained. And therefore, you might have thought, not such a big deal. No one might have noticed, necessarily, that Yaakov left. After all, Yitzhak and Rivka are still there. They remain behind. Therefore, the Medrash explains that we are taught in our Parsha that even though Yitzhak and Rivka were there, the merit and the impact of one tzaddik is not the same as having two or three. And therefore, even though Yitzhak and Rivka remained, the very presence of Yaakov added when he was there, and his absence was felt after he departed. The idea of this medrash, really the basis that underlies the entire medrash, is connected to a fundamental principle of faith, which is not explicit in the medrash, but it's really, as I say, it's underlying everything in the medrash. And that is the belief, the principle really of faith in Judaism, the belief in the value of every individual. Yes, the medrash is discussing tzaddikim, Great people, holy people, not average, stam, regular people, that's true. But that's only a quantitative difference, not, not a qualitative one. Since every person has unique and supreme value, as great and as a holy person may be, so they have even more value. But the foundation of everything is the overriding value that Judaism places on every person, every man, every woman, and every child. Perhaps to a degree that tzaddik is even greater. But it's just a question of scale. The basic fundamental point is that every person is endowed with unique and infinite value and holiness and dignity. I mention all of this and emphasize this point. In light of the return of the hostages, the story that we were gripped by, all hanging on every detail, even as Shabbos was coming in, the return of the hostages in exchange for and at the expense of freeing terrorists and giving Hamas a ceasefire, which will presumably help them much more than Sahal needed it. This is an extremely heavy price, and it was, no doubt, an incredibly complicated decision. I am filled with overwhelming happiness for the freed hostages and their families. And at the same time, I am filled with overwhelming fear and dread for what this will mean for the war and for the ultimate goal of eliminating Hamas. These are contradictory emotions, but we know how to live with contradiction. In Judaism, we know how to walk and chew gum at the same time. We know that there are times in life where we have to say a shehechiyanu and a dayan ha'emes simultaneously. Is this an incredible and wise decision? Is this a horrible and foolish decision? The answer is clearly both. It is a great and terrible decision at the same time. I'm not a politician, I'm not a military expert, and I have no idea if on balance, is it a little bit better or is it a little bit worse? I don't know if anybody can tell you the truth for sure definitively one way or the other, I should say. On the surface, it seems crazy to give your enemy a break in the middle of a war and to release three times the number of terrorists as hostages. The only justification for this decision is because Israel believes 
and accepts and feels deeply in our collective kishkas the words of the Rambam. The loss, the death of even one member of our community is like the loss, the death of the entire world. To save even one life. That's as if you have saved or sustained the entire world. Every person has infinite value and sanctity. We are proud of this belief. We have to daven, however, the disbelief and the rachmanos and compassion that comes with it do not lead to more death and more bloodshed. We pray to you, Hashem, our beloved Father in Heaven. We beg of you, not only these 13, but all the captives be freed and returned healthy to their families, healthy in body and healthy in spirit. And we pray that you watch over the chayalim, and protect them and bless their efforts with success and bless their noble mission in defeating our enemies.